Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, Lord God, you're a God who is uh, powerful and, um, and supreme in all things, the creator of the universe. Yet, Lord God, you have mercy on us and, uh, and you know us personally. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you speak to us. You don't let us, you're not leaving us in the dark. But Lord, um, we pray today that you would help us to understand your word and then help us to put it into practice in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I have left my little clicker down there. Hold on a second. There we go. Well, I don't know, you, you can probably imagine this scene, probably from some Pixar movie. Uh, something like this. This is the new Incredibles 2 is out at the moment. Um, great movie. And it has these evil villain, villains who stand over people and go, do you defy me? It's that sort of thing. Maybe it's in Star Wars. I'm not quite sure. Maybe it's the Emperor in Star Wars. Do you defy me? And no one would dare, of course. But it is a movie. And, uh, and it's a bad guy saying it. So we generally don't trust that that's the way it's going to work out, that this, is, this guy is all-powerful, that he has the power that he says he has, that he will come through on his promises. Well, we don't really trust that because of the nature of the movie. Now, I wonder if we think the same about the power of God. That God doesn't really have the power that we hear he has, that we read he has. In fact, I think it's quite common in the world we live today. Uh, we've heard about God's power and some of the things he's done and the things he's promised to do, but we respond defiantly. Why should I let the power of God disturb my life? Why should I doubt for a moment that my human power and ingenuity cannot match God's power? Now, when we put it like that, well, of course, it sounds a bit silly, doesn't it? You know, uh, yet many people play this game with God. And perhaps we join in from time to time. In our world, the power of God hardly causes people to tremble. Now, those of us who know God know that this is dangerous thinking. It's a dangerous game to play with God. But here's the problem. You have to admit this. It looks as though we can get away with it. It happened to the Philistines. Remember the Philistines a couple of weeks back in chapter 4? Uh, when they were faced with the power of God in the form of the Ark of the Covenant that got wheeled out before the big battle. And uh, the Ark of the Covenant, of course, represents God's power. When they see the Ark, they remember God's covenant promises. They remember the, Is the Israelites escaping from Egypt, the, the Red Sea uh, crossing, all that sort of stuff. That's what it represented. It represented the power of God. So the Israelites reel it out. They're face confronted with the power of God. But what do the Philistines say? You might remember this. The Philistines say to each other, take courage, be strong, be men and fight. And they did. And they won. They won. They took on God and they won. At least that's what it looks like. See, those of us who defy God and rely on our human strength to get on without him, well, they seem to do all right. Like the Philistines, they seem to win more of their share of life's battles. Defying God is not something that looks especially stupid. 
And it's, so, you know, it's, it's pretty rare to find someone who is afraid of defying God. You know, those sort of questions people might ask you to get to know you a bit, on a sharing question. They might ask, um, what are you afraid of? Now, most of us, well, would, we might say, you know, sharks and spiders and cows. Oh, I don't like cows, they're creepy. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but not many people will say, God, I tremble before God. See, so do you find yourself trembling for those you, who, see, who you see defying God and his power? My guess is if you're anything like most people, you probably don't. 1 Samuel 5 and 6 should, tells us that we should. So today, we're going to get to know God, uh, but not so that we push him away. We'll see that's the wrong response. But instead, as Jesus invites us to draw near to him, to trust him, and obey him. Well, let's have, if you've got 1 Samuel 5 open, that'll be helpful. Um, we're in Ashdod. Now, Ashdod, have a look. This is the movement of the ark. So Ashdod's down here. Rightio. And there's a few other places. You might remember Aphek, that's where the battle was, or Ebenezer, the battle was about there. And there's Shiloh, been following from 1 uh, Samuel. And so this is the movement of the ark down there, all the way. This is all Philistine territory. Gath, Ekron, Beth Shemesh. Hard to say that. Kathy did very well pronouncing that. I'm a bit jealous. I'm going to stuff it up, I'm sure. Um, but that's where the ark went. So we're in Ashdod. It's the northernmost, um, well, give or take. Uh, commentaries I, said, I read said the northernmost city in Philistine. Well, it doesn't look like the northernmost city there, does it? Ekron looks further north. But anyway, uh, maybe it's the northernmost um, big city. It was a premier city. Uh, a city that people would come to, it's almost like a capital. Um, although I think the people at Gath had something to say to that because they had a thriving music scene, I'm told. No, I'm just making that up. All right. Um, so <clears throat> the Philistines, they had captured the ark, they'd brought it to Ashdod, and they'd placed it before their god or the image of their god, Dagon. So here's the god of Israel. That's what the ark represents, the god of Israel, defeated, being placed before the victorious god Dagon in Dagon's temple. It's not hard to see the statement that they're trying to make, don't you think? It's not hard to see that. But before they had a chance to get stuck into their weepix, something happened overnight. Dagon fell on his face before the ark. Now, now it's Dagon that bows before the Lord. But don't you love the next line? If you've got your Bibles there, it's the end of verse 3 and 4. I'm sure that the writer here had his tongue firmly placed in his cheek. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. What sort of God is that? <laughs> what sort of God is that that needs humans to stand it back up again? That's not a God. But it gets worse, and I think a little funnier for the Israelite reading, and maybe even for us as well, Verse 4 describes, I don't know, it's a Humpty Dumpty scene. Remember Humpty Dumpty? He sat on the wall. Um, anyway, the next morning, Dagon's head and arms were smashed off. He'd fallen down again. Dagon is getting smashed. He's, this is the defeated God defeats the victorious God on the latter's home ground, on his home turf. See, the writer wants the reader, that's us, to see that these verses, not only, not only the, well, there's a bit of humour going on, a bit of ridicule of this God, Dagon. 
but also the futility of taking on the God of Israel and the helplessness of Dagon and the helplessness of the Philistines and, of course, eventually um, Dagon's destruction. The God of Israel does not need someone to come and prop him up again. He can fight the Philistines all by himself. He'll bring back the ark and he doesn't need people to cheer him on. And he doesn't even need people to carry him. We'll see that in a few moments' time. The Lord is not like Dagon and any other pagan gods that us humans make up. He's not some helpless god that needs to be cuddled, needs to be protected, propped up again and sustained by worshippers. That's not the God we believe in. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of Israel. We read that we, the reader of God's word, need to understand that the God of Israel and the God of our, of our, of, of, um, of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is supreme, is the right word, I think. Or as the Apostle Paul said to the people in Athens, amongst the philosophers and the, so forth in the Areopagus, uh, this is what Paul said. He said, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everything, everyone life and breath and everything, uh, everything else. You see, we ought to be careful... And I guess, it's a, I guess it's a type of human arrogance, I think, that casts God in the image of Dagon. In other words, that, well, he needs us to work. He needs us to do his thing. He needs us to stand him back up again uh, so, he, so he can get on with his business. If you've been around Christian churches for a while, uh, you might have heard of a little um, Christian ditty that sings, uh, he or God um, has no other hands than our hands. He has no other feet than our feet. You might have heard that. Now, of course, there's an element of truth in this, that God uses his people as ambassadors, as messengers, as partners in the gospel. He sends us out. But this truth often gets buried in little songs like this. You see, the truth is that God, the God of the Bible does not need us to do his work. He's not sitting around hamstrung waiting, hoping that we would do something for him to prop him back up again so he can get on with his business. So he does not need us, but that doesn't mean that he does not want us. There's a difference there. Okay, well, this was not the tame God that the Philistines had conquered. The ark may have fallen into the hands or into their hands, but they had fallen into the Lord's hands and it was a heavy hand. We're on point two of our little outlines there. Look at verse six, chapter five. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them. The people were struck with tumours, uh, rats, which brought terror and suffering and death. Uh, some commentators argue that this, is, uh, this was a... Well, the, the symptoms here describe a bubonic plague. Maybe that's right. And so after some time, possibly not very long, the people of Ashdod confess in verse 7 that neither, de their, neither Dagon or themselves could stand up to the power of the God of Israel. So it's time to give 
Gath a turn. The ark was moved to Gath. And it didn't, well, didn't end well there either. And so Gath sent the ark up to Ekron. But they met it at the city gates and said, Oh, no, you don't. You're not bringing that thing in here. We don't want it. Um, <laughs> and so they decide, with the other elders, to send it back to Israel where it belongs. The Philistines knew <coughs> excuse me, that the cause of their suffering was not that Ashdod and Gath and even Ekron or any were worse sinners than any of the other Philistines. They knew the presence of the ark had brought disease and death to Ashdod, Gath and Ekron, not because, not, not because of anything they'd really done it was the, the, or their, their sins any worse than anything else. It, it was because of the hand of God. So if you see, look at verse 11. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, See the ark of God of, of the, sorry, send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. So the ark's stay in Philistine territory was a long seven months. And they wanted it gone, sent back to Israel. But how would they do that? Well, the politicians didn't know. And so they sent away for some priests and some spiritual people, these diviners. They advised that the most important thing is to send a guilt offering with the, uh, the ark as it goes back. And then you'd be healed. But not just that, as we can read the full instructions in chapter 6, verses 4 to 9, they were to add five gold tumours and five gold rats. Now just imagine for the moment you've got the task of uh, making the mould for the gold tumours. Yippee, wouldn't that be fun? Disgusting. Anyway, uh, so that's what they had to do. That's what they decided would be a good idea. Don't know why they thought that was a good idea, but that's what they did. Um, and here's, I think I've found a, a Lego artist's impression. There you go, that might help. Um, so they, <laughs> they ready the new ark, you can imagine what's going on, with new mum cows with sucking calves. That's important, we'll get to that in a minute. So they're untrained, these cows. They've never been yoked together with any other cow. Uh, they place the ark, the gold rats and the tumours, all, all is ready to go. The priests and the diviners had set up a plan so they would know for sure whether what had happened was the work of God, the God of Israel, or just plain bad luck. If the cows went straight to Beth Shemesh in Israel, then they would know that it was all God's work, his divine judgment. If they wandered from the path, these cows, and came home, which was the most likely thing, as any cow person would know, that's what young mum cows do. They go back to their sucking calves, calves. Now, if that happened, well, then they would know this has all been a rotten coincidence and we know it wasn't to do with God at all. Okay? So, in other words, they made it as hard as possible, as hard as possible for God to put his signature on the circumstances. Do you see? What happened? Verse 12. Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way, they did not turn to the right or to the left. It was emphatic. <laughs> clear, as, clear as day. God had spoken. Though through cows, yes, those scary beasts, 
And um, not, not through prophets, though, God had spoken to the Philistines nonetheless. Now, yes, it wasn't the full story. It wasn't all that God obviously has to say. But it was enough truth. So how would they respond then to the power of God? What, what would they do with this? What would these Philistines do with this revelation that they actually they spent, they sent some people behind the ark and watched it as it went straight up the road? Don't you love how the cows were, were lowing all the way? Yeah, it's just it's cruising along, going straight up the road, doing what God tells me to do. Um, how would the Philistines respond, though, to the word of God, this revelation they received? Well, perhaps, perhaps they headed back to Ashdod and sent Dagon down to the local repairers and hoped the warranty was still valid. I don't know. Um, maybe they just sighed, sighed, man, I'm glad this is over. Maybe that was there. I don't know. It's, it's very easy for us as sinners, whether Philistines or other, to simply respond to the pain of a situation and not the truth of it about what God is doing. Uh, not that our pain is always God's judgment, but as James 1 says, our pain ought to point us to God, uh, produce perseverance and faith in him. Well, the return of the ark to Israel, recorded in verse, chapter 6, verses 13 and following, really marks a bit of a transition in the story. Uh, it's now Israel's turn to experience well, the heavy hand of God. But it's for different reasons. Even though Israel are his covenant people, his holiness is not something to treat casually. First, uh, chapter 6, verse 19 uh, is, the, um, there's a, that one there, that is the key verse in, um, in chapter 6 in this sort of change of direction. We need to ask as we read verse 19, I'll read it now, we need to ask why. But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Now, why? Why? Why such harsh judgment? Why such a heavy hand? Well, perhaps it was indifference to God and his ways. Eh, who cares? This looks pretty cool. I'm going to look at this. Wow. Uh, a bit of apathy. I don't care about God. What's this doing here? I've heard about what it's doing over there. I don't want it. But God is not indifferent to our indifference. Passively ignoring God has the same consequences as actively ignoring God. But what seems to be at the heart of these men's sin is what we might call, I guess we might call it sacrilege. Or just irreverence to God and his holiness. They were casual. They were casual when it came to God and his word. See, inspecting the ark in the way they did was a violation of the laws of, you can find it in Numbers chapter 4, but it's written a number of occasions in the law. They would have known that. They would have known it. They would have known the consequences too are death. You don't muck around with God. You don't treat him casually. And, of course, they suffered the consequences. So we'll pick things up again as we look now into the people's response at Beth Shemesh as they mourned because of the heavy blow that God had dealt them. We see it in verses 19 to 20. There are two responses of the people at Beth Shemesh after these men had died. Uh, one is really good. 
one is not so good. The first and right and proper response, the people, the people say, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Who can stand? Who can take on God and live? But the second misses the mark completely. They said to each other, to whom will the ark go up from here? In other words, we don't want it here. Who's got it next? Please, not us. Get rid of this thing. In fact, a more literal translation reads, to whom can we send it to be rid of him? To be rid of him. I don't know if you know the story in Mark chapter 5. Jesus uh, is with the people of the Gerasenes. And they had a similar plan in response to Jesus, these people who witnessed this miracle of Jesus. They were afraid of the power of Jesus that restores people. See, Jesus had just healed this man possessed by evil spirits, crazy man amongst the caves and the tombs. They were afraid of this Jesus who healed this man. They were afraid of this Jesus and this power of Jesus who sent the pigs to their death over the cliffs and so on. And the only option they will see is to beg Jesus to leave. To whom will the ark go up from here? Please be rid of him. Go, Jesus. We don't want you here. Just like Beth Shemesh. So there's no self-examination. There's no searching of the heart. The ark, the power of God that comes with it, must be gone. Now, we don't have an ark of the covenant here. But we can fall into the same Beth Shemesh Gerasene's thinking. We can forget that God is holy. That is different. He's set apart. That's what holiness means. And then he doesn't conform to our expectation of an easygoing God. And our culture doesn't help us smash our graven image of a casual God either. Our culture proclaims that God must be the essence of tolerance. In fact, our, our, our culture proclaims God to be just like us. There's a song written years ago uh, that, that sung, um, What if God was one of us? Wouldn't that be great, in other words? Another song sings, God, Jesus, well, Jesus, Jesus is just me mate. Me mate, me mate. Jesus is me mate. Um, rather than holy. Uh, Jesus is my co-pilot. And so on. See, when we water down God's holiness, we can be sure that we are not knowing the living and true God. Jonathan Edwards, he's an 18th century American preacher, worth reading, um, once noted that it is the absence of godly fear that signifies a lack of, no, of the knowledge of God. See, the reality is we need to share half of the attitude of Beth Shemesh people as they respond to the power of God. So there's a sense in which it is dangerous to be in the presence of God. True. But our response is not to be rid of him. That's not what God wants. His presence is actually our supreme joy and our supreme peril. It means that getting casual with God is not the way. Jesus calls us into an intimate and personal relationship with God as we call him Father. But at the same time, well, we tremble before the all-powerful Holy God. Now, friends, for one, this, of course, makes God's love for us his only son's death for us, even more extraordinary, does it not? Okay, three little implications. They're not little, they're pretty important, really, <laughs> as we close. 
And I think they'll help us destroy any false images of God. The first one is when we see the supremacy of God, that was the first five verses of this passage in chapter 5, we know that he is not some helpless God who needs, needs us so he can do his thing. Second, we see in the heavy hand of God that he is no hidden God, but one who is clearly at work, even if he uses cows to make his point. And then third, as we get to know the holy God we read of in the Bible, we see that the casual God we think we know doesn't exist. How about we pray? Father, this passage um, uh, challenges us in our thinking about what you are, who you are and what you're like. Lord, we thank you that you are indeed supreme, that you are the creator of the universe, that there is no other gods like you, that you are the true and living God, holy and set apart. But God, you love us personally. You sent your only son, Jesus, so that we could know you personally. Lord God, you've intervened in our lives intervened in the history of the world and lord we thank you and we praise you what a magnificent and extraordinary thing that is lord may we never treat you casually and we pray that you would be in our hearts and minds uh, you'd be directing us helping us to obey you and lord we thank you that you've given us your spirit to help us do that Lord, thank you for your goodness and mercy to us. We thank you for your power. That power was so great that you sent your son Jesus to die and rise again for us. Thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.